Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is on Patreon, patreon.com backslash rock and roll bedtime stories. You can come in at a couple different tiers, $5 a month or at $10 a month. You can get a weekly newsletter from Brian and I, plus specially created playlist. Yeah, we're doing a couple of things. Uh, bonus episodes, depending on what tier you're on. One is the top five episode where we will be trying to determine the ultimate top five of a given subject uh, from month to month. And the other uh, bonus episode that you could, you will be getting are what we call playlist episodes where, yeah, we talk about music and we create playlists around a theme back and forth and and have some fun. It's, it's a little bit like being backstage. It's a little bit like hanging out with us. And we really appreciate the support and everyone who has already uh, joined uh, as a patron. We appreciate your patronage. So go to Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Rock and roll bedtime stories. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Story. Listener mail at wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. That is how you get involved with the show. Like this one from Mark in Michigan. He says, Hey guys, I just found your podcast and I've been feverishly getting caught up. Awesome, Mark. Thank you. Uh, Thanks, Mark. Love your banter, your information, and your frequent derailment. We never get derailed. We never, I don't know what all. he's talking about. What a, no. What's he, Have you ever seen a group of squirrels in, a, in, in like a dumpster? <laughs> no, wait. Have you ever seen a group of raccoons in a dumpster? A group yeah, I got of it squirrels wrong. in a dumpster. Uh, I think either way that works. Uh, Have you ever seen a group of dead squirrels in a dumpster? Exactly. See, I went straight dark. Ooh, yeah, oh, man. Uh, so this is this is what Mark wants to ask us about, though. He says, after, after the pleasantries, he turns to this. Can you confirm the rumors I've heard about Billy Squire's career being upended by a music video? <laughs> I did not know what he was talking about do you immediately know what he's referring to he's referring to rock me tonight i can't tell you much more about it but i remember he had on a silky blouse every single thing you read about it is like what's up with the shirt he's wearing like that's yeah. every single thing i've read and, about this video and he and he rips it and it's like and it's the slow-mo rip or it just shows the rip over and over again and the rips like really dramatic dude great song there's basically this argument. Let me just lay this out so we know what we're talking about. There is basically an argument that Billy Squire, who we will talk about, went from being one of the biggest rock acts in the country to being basically abandoned by his fan base almost overnight because he released what many consider to be the worst music video of all time. Yes, people think that it is. And if everybody that's like, I don't know who he is, and you don't know the, the stroke, uh, and it's not stroking, not the Clarence Carter song, but you know, <laughs> everybody, have you heard that one? Yeah, like oh, that's yeah. a oh yeah. I mean that you could play that before like any band playing, mm -hmm. and a, like a, you know before like ZZ Top or Fall Out Boy. Oh, like yeah. everyone knows, you know, it's like that's a that's a vamp song. It's a song to get people excited about. So. Not everybody subscribes to this theory. Not everybody really believes that this music video ended his career, but. There is someone in particular who does seem to be a big proponent of this theory, and that person is Billy Squire himself. Oh man, this uh, is so, so weird. Let's talk about him, right? So you've already you've led us there a little bit, but tell me about your relationship with that guy. Yeah. Um, so I think "Don't Say No" comes out in '81, mm -hmm. and I get the cassette for mm -hmm. that. 
So if you put put that date together, dude, that's that's before a lot of the other metal music I was listening to. Real generic looking cover and everything. Uh, I had that cassette and and it moved into the CD when I had CDs, but it had In the Dark, My Kind of Lover, and The Stroke on it. And, oh, yeah. And I listened to those songs over and over and over and over again. Never stop. I know the hits, but the thing that really put Billy Squire in my heart gave me a fondness for him was when I saw him playing on, on MTV's Christmas special. That That's what won me over. Now, I've probably talked about this on the show before, but if you've never seen it, the link is in the show notes. You need to go watch it. Remember, MTV appears in August of 81, and this is December of 81. So everything is new, and they're still trying to figure things out. There's this great Martha Quinn quote. Martha Quinn. Whew. Let's just talk about how you feel about Martha Quinn real quick. Two thumbs up. Um, it- Kind of like Winona Ryder. <laughs> yeah, that's a good comparison. Or Joan Jett. Uh, so it, it, this is Martha Quinn's quote, remembering that Christmas special. Quote, if I had to go back in time and revisit one day, like if I could get into the DeLorean and go back to one particular moment, it would probably be this. What you see in that video, it was recorded within minutes of our, within months of our launch, and we were all so starry-eyed, and we were such believers, and we were rebels with a cause. And everyone you see in that video, they're the technicians, they're the secretaries, they're the executives, they're the production assistants. We were all one big happy family fighting for this thing we created called MTV. And we believed so strongly in the power of rock and roll, and you can really see it there. It's interesting that the, the people that were in the video were just everybody that's around. It's just the staff. Everybody come to the studio, right? We've all we we you we've done that. We're working for different media companies, and I agree with her assessment of this. There is something magical. It still feels like magic to me watching it in the year twenty twenty three. And the first time I saw it, which would have been after the year two thousand, I'm sure, I was like, "What is this? This is like." This is lightning in a bottle. Here's the story behind it. Billy apparently lived in New York at the time. And as they were launching this, he would just hang out at the studio. And so when they were doing this Christmas thing, it just like either he was around or it just made sense to have him there because he was typically around. But he starts a tradition. So for the next five years, they will do a similar sort of Christmas segment with other people. Never, I didn't know that at all. No way. I just thought this was a one-off with him. In the next five years, Thoroughgood, Brian Adams... John Anderson from Yes, which I want to find that one, uh, and the Monkees all take part. So, so after Billy Squire, it all went to poop. Okay. Well, Billy Squire is the highlight. Maybe that's why we don't see those floating around uh, every Christmas season like we see Christmas is the time to say I love you. But what a great song, too. Let's just take a moment for how great that song is. Christmas is the time to say I love you. that Billy made sense to do this at the at the beginning of MTV and part of it was because he was he was huge. You, he was on MTV, he was a core artist. You you've already nailed this by mentioning the record that you came in contact with. But this is sort of where all of that starts to take off. But he is on his way up at the end of 81. But let's let's look at the whole career. William Hayslip Squire. He's born in Massachusetts in 1950, which makes him almost 73 years old now. Yeah, and so he's a Clapton guy. 
So he, mm-hmm. he, he saw the blues, bre- blues breakers as a kid. So he saw cream, um, and we'll play with bands like when he's a teenager. And then he got an early gig playing on the same stage where he saw cream play. So that's that, that self-actualization that you yeah. get to do. And he, he did that really early on in, uh, in life. Yeah, and then he toys with different life choices. Uh, he he actually tries to go to Berkeley School of Music for a bit, which that's a, a real commitment. Uh, he'll end up continuing to try to get out just in different bands as a pro musician for a while. And then in the mid-70s, he finally starts to get some traction with a particular band. Yeah, he was in Piper. He had a band <laughs> called Piper. Dude, Piper. I, knew, I knew you were going to know Piper. I knew you yeah. were going to love Piper. Are you a Piper yeah. fan? It's hard to say, like, I didn't know that he had a band before until I heard him, and then somehow I found out about Piper, and whether it was like I, I got an LP or whatever it is, and it was just, it was weird, but it was Bill Akuin, so right, is the yeah, guy who, uh-huh. who who managed Kiss. So um, they get to play with Kiss. That's how yeah. I was like, definitely Murdoch knows about Piper. Yeah. I, and. I don't know how much the world at large respects the past opinions of Circus Magazine, but they once called the self-titled Piper album, quote, the greatest debut album ever produced by a U.S. rock band. Yeah, definitely didn't listen to Too Fast for Love. But listen, Piper is a great thing you should check out (laughs) because it's like T-Rex light Mm. American style. And that's why I like it. There's, There's not much not to like. Break up in '78, something like that. He gets a solo deal on Capitol in '79, and doesn't do that much at first. But then he calls Brian May from Queen to get him to produce the next record. He asked Brian May, "Really? That's ballsy." Okay. May says no due to scheduling, but he connects him with a guy that they've been working with. They being Queen, Reinhold Mack. Reinhold Mack, you might know if you saw the Sparks documentary or if you know much oh. about ELO. Reinhold Mack is involved in those bands, and so they make some damn magic together, and that's Don't Say No, which you've already mentioned, which goes not once, not twice, three times platinum, powered, of course, by the song The Stroke. favorite Billy Squire song? I mean, mine's the Christmas uh, song, but... Um, the two... It's hard to get her. It's um, My Kind of Lava and... My Kind of Lava mm-hmm. and, and In the Dark. Those are the two I like the most. So, th- the, yeah, those are on that record, too. Lonely as the Night is on that record, which is one I really like. I remember playing that a lot when we worked together in Classic Rock. Um, and, and this is when he gets that momentum and when the MTV Christmas thing happens. And then the next couple of years, things keep getting better. The next record is in 83. It's called Emotions in Motion. And it includes a little song called Everybody Wants You. 
Yep. Which is a big jukebox record hit for sure. You ever done that karaoke? No. I've always wanted to, I guess. Uh, we need to just make a list of like what the next time you and I find e- find ourselves at a karaoke bar together, the songs we're going to do. That this gets him it gets him on tour with Queen. So Really? Yeah. Well, opening up for Queen. So he, wow. They open for Queen, him and his band, and then he gets to headline and this little fun fact Guess who they take out? It's a band that loosely was in the new wave of British heavy metal, right? It's uh, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, De- it's Def Leppard. It, it hey, is Def how Leppard. many degrees did it? How long did it take us to get to Motley Crue? <laughs> right there, right freaking there. Uh, not many. Yeah, Def Leppard. Yeah. yeah, and eighty-three is Pyromania, yeah. which ended up being like frigging enormous, enormous, like before Hysteria, right. like Pyromania. Uh, fantastic, great songs on there. Well, and just the fact that Def Leppard at one point opened for Billy Squire helps reestablish how big Billy Squire was. Because we have lost that concept. I don't think anyone listening to the show, unless they just happen to be a giant Billy Squire fan in 81, really can remember or properly process how big he was. Because he's not stayed in the spotlight. And that's part of what this whole story is about, right? Like, what happened to this guy? that he was one of the biggest rock stars in the world in the early 80s, and then he totally disappears. Yeah. So in the early 80s at this time, if you were successful, there was a company of suits behind you trying to get more output from you quickly. It was like they just didn't know how long it was going to last. So not only is it now time to write the new record, they like basically have a promotional timeline for it. And this is like an important thing to understand about this story, that basically at this point in his career, there is like a schedule. And so they're like, Billy, if you're going to keep up this level of stardom, figure out what you're going to do for this album, but here's the dates you're going to do it on. And this go, go, go mentality around pushing the product, this is a big reason, in my opinion, that what happens, happens. Got it. So anyway, the new record that he's working on now, it's called Signs of Life. Did he try to get Mutt Lang to produce it? Mm. Yeah, so this is the one that he tries to get Mutt Lang to produce. and He, he says no. He says no, because he's got scheduling conflicts. And so he will work on Signs of Life with somebody else, who weirdly recently keeps coming up on the show, and that is Meatloaf's writing partner, Jim Steinman. I don't even like Meatloaf, and this guy just is invasive into our podcast so much, <laughs> which is so much. Yeah, so this doesn't sound like those other Billy Squire records, oh, right? Because yeah, we'll just say lots, lots more keyboards, a lot of keyboards. Of keys. But that's when I hear "Rock Me Tonight." I think of that those keys. does have a a distinct and different sound than all those songs we mentioned before, right? But to emphasize the timeline Billy's career is on for Capitol at this point, let me read you dates. When I got all these dates on paper, I was like, oh, the story's kind of coming together. Squire and Steinman and the band record this record over six weeks. 
April 28th, 1984 <laughs> to June 16th, 1984. Hear me say June 16th, 1984. Rock Me Tonight, the single, just the music, not the music video, is dropped to radio on June 19th, 1984. So three days after the record is finished. And then they put the entire album out in July. Yeah, it's like a punk band, six weeks. A- April 28th, there's nothing. July, it's in homes. And I- honestly, I question how that's even possible. But if this is anywhere close to accurate, it-, it sheds tons of light on what happens next. And what happens next is a series of decisions about how Billy Squire is going to promote the first single from Signs of Life. The aforementioned Rock Me Tonight. Yeah. And we mentioned he's got pals at MTV. So they promise him, listen, it does us as much good as it does you to have a new video. So we'll give you an MTV Music Video World premiere. When when I first read the story, I was confused on why there was so much pressure to make a video quickly. But now that I've seen this timeline, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I remember because I'm an older man than you. I remember these world premieres, and like, what what were they really? They like, were a big deal, right? Were they? Yeah, it it just was like at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. Tonight will be the brand new blah 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 video. And the thing was, there was no, other than like Friday night videos on NBC on Friday nights or like Night Flight on USA. Like you couldn't really watch videos anywhere else. But they, you know. They made a non-event into an event, which is what an artist needs to break a single. Oh yeah, without radio. I, I mean, so. it, this is this sort of stuff. Even when we were in radio, was a bit of a thing where you would have these opportunities to play songs on the radio before you could get them anywhere else. So you would yeah. drive listening eight o'clock tonight, ten o'clock tonight, nine o'clock tonight. We're going to play the new song from whatever band. Now that seems ridiculous because. An artist has a song, they upload it to the internet, and everybody has it. Yeah, this is a big deal. So again, it's still a new network. They're still figuring out how to leverage it, but they are making a non-event an event. You put that very nicely. And so four albums in at this point, his publicity, his record cycles, they're well-oiled machines, and his team is laying out the schedule, assuming there will be a product. So he knows when he's promoting things before he knows what he's promoting. And this is the thing with the MTV video premiere. They have a date. And they know what song the video is going to be, but they don't have a video yet. Yeah, and we talked about this with Cindy Lauper, right? Yeah, yeah, about how important so, that video was. Right, and and I remember Billie Jean the first time Ooh, I saw that. Yeah, and I remember on Friday night videos and NBC the first time I saw Hungry Like the Wolf. <laughs> and but like MTV was a network, and. And because once it got into cable in, in homes, there's no way to like explain how important it was because it was different than radio because you got to look at the videos. And some of it was like very low budget. Like I think Jump by Van Halen cost 500 bucks to make. I think when they got Gary Sharon and they had that first single off it, they paid a million dollars to film that in Sweden oh in the God. ice hotel. Right. So MTV, no matter what, even then specifically was where like you wanted to break a record. It's like, it was kind of what, I mean, I don't want to say it's TikTok then, but I mean, 
Well, I, I think I mean there is right? a there is a comparison to be made there about the strategy, right? About knowing that you have this other piece of the puzzle that's going to be very important, and they're still figuring out how to negotiate and account for it at this point. And I think what we end up seeing in this story is that a lot of artists still maybe underestimated the power of what that visual would contribute to the rest of their career. So when Billy's camp realizes they're in a time crunch, they ask MTV to move the date of the premiere. But MTV says, listen, we can do it, Billy, old buddy, old pal. But there's no promise of when we're going to be able to get you back into this slot because we've been promising other people these video premiere slots, right? And so they sort of decide, let's power on. Let's figure out if we can do this. And Billy and his team have to produce something, so they start looking for a producer. There's this 2011 oral history put together by Rob Tannenbaum and Craig Marks. It is excellent. It's called I Want My MTV. And there's a chapter in that book about this situation. And I only say this because there's no simpler way to say it. The chapter about this situation in that book is titled, quote, A Whopping Steaming Turd. Oh my gosh, I'm just about the video. <laughs> yeah, about the video. Uh, and wow. that's taken from that's... a quote in the oral history. In that account, the search for the video director for the song is more detailed, but basically just know that they started at the top. They went to like the best man in the land who had the track record at the time, and they can't get him. And through timing and circumstance and whatever else, they end up with someone very different. So they they go to the, the head guy, whose name I'm forgetting, and then they go to this guy, David Mallet. And David Mallet had worked with Queen and with Iron Maiden, and like there's some confusion about, he's like, said he would do it, and then he decided not to. But he backs away from it, and this other name gets brought up. This guy who actually had worked with David Mallett as a choreographer. And this guy not only had worked with David Mallett, who they had been asking to help, but he also knows Billy's girlfriend at the time. And this guy ends up calling Billy and asking for the job. So that's how Billy Squire ends up putting his project into the hands of Kenny Ortega. You have any familiarity with that name? Is he like high school musical guy? Yeah, he's high school musical guy, dude. The Descendants, <laughs> really? Yeah. Like kid musical? Like did oh, he do listen, musical musicals, listen. or did he just do like the Nickelodeon? Oh crap? no, he did. Okay, this guy is a legend, literally. Especially if you're a fan of Disney, Disney awarded him their Disney Legend Award in 2019. He has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Back then, he was pretty green. Here's what he did, though. After Billy Squire, so just pause. After Billy Squire, he will direct Hocus Pocus. Hmm. He will direct Newsies. Eight thumbs down. <laughs> You're not a Newsies guy? No. Screw that show. Uh, and he will eventually lead the Disney Channel takeover in the early 2000s. So that, that does, you've already hmm. named it. High School Musical 1 through 3, The Descendants. And it actually makes sense because it points back to the very roots of Kenny Ortega. He started on stage as a stage actor. He was in the oh. 70s touring with Oliver and with Hair. Oh. Yeah. And he's doing so well that he gets an offer to play the lead in a production of Jesus Christ Superstar. It's tempting to completely derail this episode right now and take a wild left turn because we get to talk about the tubes. The band? The band. Okay.
what do you tell me about the tubes and Mark Murdoch? Uh, I remember not liking She's a Beauty, but it gave me real horny vibes. The young, <laughs> there was something in that, right? Like it was provocative. Uh, they were they were a horny band for sure. There was something really provocative about that video mm-hmm. that was different than the other videos. The, I don't remember now, but this, I guess this that's is a true. fascinating band and a fascinating story from the very get go. I do think we need to spend a minute here because understanding the tubes is going to help us understand Kenny Ortega and subsequently give us a lot of clarifying context on this whole Billy Squire thing. Take us to the mountaintop, okay. Brian. This sounds like a weird road. I'm it, ready. It is weird. I will do Cliff's notes. Uh, the tubes get famous in San Francisco in the mid seventies, which speaking of a, a place to be that is very eclectic, right? They start as two different bands in Phoenix, Arizona. They will end up merging together for personnel and practical reasons. And the core thing you got to understand is that the tubes are theatrical. It's it's almost more theater than it is music. And they build all of this in the art scene in 70s San Fran. So this puts them in the intersection with a lot of people that are very interesting. Uh, the, the one tube story that's really worth getting distracted by for our purposes is this. So they go to San Francisco and they're just playing in bars and trying to do what they can to get by as they sort of get their band together. And so some of them are taking different studio gigs. And one of them gets this gig where he's in the studio with this new band from the area called Journey. Very early Journey. Yeah, with Robert Fleischman, I guess, in vocals. There is a guy managing Journey at the time who is an employee of Bill Graham. I don't feel like we need to explain who Bill Graham is, but just know very famous rock promoter, key guy in San Fran music scene at this point. And so when the the tubes see an opportunity, right? This guy has been working around. They're looking for their break. And so they're like, oh, we know somebody who knows Bill Graham, works with Bill Graham. What do we have to do to get on a Bill Graham show? Because that's our ticket. And he says this. Okay, listen. If you want to do that, go sell out three local shows on your own. So basically, go do a bunch of work to promote yourself for however long it's going to take to sell all three local shows. And then you can just pick whatever Bill Graham show that's coming up that you want to be on. You can pick whatever Bill Graham show. Yeah, so it sounds like a kiss-off, right? Like, we've all if you've been in local music scenes, you've probably known this sort of behavior, right? It's like, go sell a bunch of tickets to this show, and then maybe we'll talk about putting your band on another show. Maybe we'll talk about doing this. But the tubes aren't messing around. I mean, they... They're messing with the wrong band if they think that the tubes are going to ask for them to keep their end of the deal. So they do it. They go and they sell out three shows. And when the Bill Graham crew asks them which show they want to open, Murdoch, they already know. I, I, I picture it as like, they're like, okay, fine. What show do you want to open? And they just go, let's up one accuse our stadium. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a big gig. That was uh, that was fifty thousand people. Fifty thousand people, and, they, and the and the band made more than the Beatles made at that gig at any other gig that the Beatles ever played. Like it was like so many thousand dollars a minute or something, and and it was billed. The ticket had special guests on it, and it didn't tell you the special guests are. So imagine a large percentage of fifty thousand people who are on the Lysergic, expecting special guest means. I don't know, yeah. Donovan, right? you know, whoever. And and so instead they get Roy Harper, who's first, <laughs> on like a stool and a guitar. And people like don't know who he is. There was an, uh, someone else. And the Tubes got to to play that gig too. And there the I mean, there might have been another one. 
and then Led Zeppelin was late. The the tubes don't fuck around with this opportunity. So here's what they do. They do the full theatrical. So they come out and they're playing characters. There's like a what and we're again, we're not going to get distracted by this, but there's like a a character that one of them develops that becomes part of the show. This is like an early version of that, but comes out in that character and starts like saying he's throwing cocaine and pills into the audience. It's like candy, but he's like cocaine pills. He's got like just baggies of stuff that he's launching in the audience. It's a whole thing. Bill Graham gets pissed that this band is on stage. And I tell this story because it illustrates how bombastic these dudes are and how much is going to be expected of anybody that helps them further in their career at this point, right? Because they have the balls to just go out at a Led Zeppelin show and act crazy. This sort of stunting helps lead them to a deal with A&M Records, which then means they have to build an elaborate stage show to take on the road. And the stage show, for it to work, has to have a choreographer and a director. And for that gig, they get... Kenny Ortega. And right. that's what he does instead of going on Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh. So, she's a beauty. So that's the gig. And that's what, like, that's the world he's come from, is basically art rock. And so that's 75. Musicals. The Billy Squire music video is 1984. So there's nine years. In those nine years, he will tour with the tubes for a lot of it. But then he'll get bigger gigs. He will choreograph a share TV special. Hmm. He will work with kiss on the dynasty tour. Hmm. Like work with, I guess the tour itself. Yeah. Not, I, not I, the actual I, record. No, 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 not the record, the tour. So he, yeah. he does choreography, I believe on the tour. He will get hired as a choreographer on another core text in Murdoch's life. Xanadu. Oh Yeah. Should be a red flag for Billy Squire, but let's keep moving. <laughs> and then he'll dip his toe in the water of this new medium that is becoming a core component of rock and roll commerce, music videos. Yeah. And I was concerned that he worked on the Dynasty record, and I'd be like, no, why, do, <laughs> why do you want him to touch your music videos? But that's fine. So I said that Billy wasn't his first music video. That's true. He has directing credits on Denise Williams's Let's Hear It For The Boy, yeah. Stone Cold Classic. And the Pointer Sisters, I'm so excited. Right. So like two serious metal classics. <laughs> so if you're really trying to be taken seriously in the rock and roll world, uh, this is the guy you should call. The guy behind Xanadu. And I'm so excited. Now I'm so excited. Oh, my God. I, I, you know, my mom's favorite singer was Paul Anka, and we took her to Vegas, and we had front row seats, and, and like Paul Anka came out, and that was the that was the encore. I'm so excited. Yeah. And I, and just, I just can't, can't hide, hide it. it. <laughs> he came off the stage and like hugged my mom's neck and shit. Oh, that's um, a beautiful story. And I remember he kind of pointed at me during I'm so excited, and I just pointed back like, Screw you getting mailbox money for every time the Tonight Show theme played when Johnny Carson was still on the show. You got uh, made so much money. So I, anyway. I alluded to this earlier, but like it's arguable here that he's not directed a rock video yet. So this for him is a great opportunity because this kind of puts him in the rock world. Now, I mean, you could say the tubes are, but as you said, She's a Beauty was a whole different thing. That was, it wasn't really the same thing you were getting out of a Billy Squire record. So, Billy gives him a pitch. And let's just say it could be open to a few different interpretations. When they have this conversation about him doing the video, Billy says he has a vision 
of paralleling what it was like for Billy Squire himself to get ready to go on stage and for his fans to get ready to go watch him on stage. All right. So this isn't a bad concept on paper. reasonable. Right. Yeah. So his idea is you show a bunch of kids getting ready to go to the arena and then he's backstage getting ready to go on stage at the arena. And that like kind of makes sense on paper. So he tells Kenny this and he says, Kenny, the scenes where I'm getting ready, what I want it to feel like is American Gigolo. <laughs> should we, we, should we the, talk we, about we have, what that means? Well, do we have the receipts on why this video sucks already? <laughs> You're not right? an American Gigolo guy? Like, no. Okay. And, and like, I don't know. I don't know how in terms of me wanting to have a music video that's supposed to be kick ass and like have that connected to that movie. Oh, my God, dude. So apparently there's a TV series remake of this that's currently been happening. And I've heard it's really bad. I have not watched Rock it. Me Tonight. Oh, no, 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 no. American no. Gigolo. American Gigolo. I'm <laughs> uh, just messing with you. But American Gigolo, the film is a 1980s crime drama, 1980, actually, that stars Richard Gere. In, in what is considered his defining leading man role. And it's also defining because you see his dick in this movie. Oh my gosh, I forgot about that. I guess I wasn't really looking. I always thought Pretty Woman was his defining role. I, this, this gets him to Pretty Woman, though, right? Like This is, wh- this is why he has the cachet, because Julie Roberts yeah. doesn't have the cachet at that point. So yeah. More, yeah. more important than the male nudity is who directed this. So if you're like, let's just put on our film head hat. I know I'm more of a film head than you are, uh, but this is a Paul Schrader film. And he considers American Gigolo part of a series of movies that he made that he thinks are in conversation with each other. And one of those movies that he considers in conversation with American Gigolo is motherfucking Taxi Driver. That's an interesting idea. I would never put those in the same clothes line out back behind my house. <laughs> so in Billy Maybe in different hampers in Billy's head, his getting ready for the show scene should mirror a male prostitute getting ready to fuck in a crime drama made by the dude responsible for one of the darkest looks inside the male psyche ever made taxi driver. So that's what he has in his brain. Now, can you see how pairing Kenny Ortega and Billy Squire might be a mismatch? Maybe. <laughs> this is so messed up. You, you've got a young director known for flamboyance, a rocker with a clear vision and a mystique that he wants to create in a very tight timetable, not a recipe for success. In fact, there is a brief mention in this oral history that makes it sound like essentially Billy has has a conversation with Kenny where he says, I want this to look like the opening to American Gigolo. And Kenny's like, oh, you mean like Risky Business where Tom Cruise is dancing in his underwear? <laughs> What? Those aren't the same things. <laughs> yeah, a mismatch, like I said. So this is a quote from Billy. We shot on a soundstage in L.A. only a week or two before the world premiere. There wasn't much time left. I came to the set, and I see all these pastel colors, a comic book city backdrop, smoke machines, a bed with satin sheets. Yeah, that's right. And Kenny says, trust me, trust me, when this goes on to film, it's going to look exactly how you want. Spoiler alert, when it went on to film, it did not look like Billy wanted. (laughs) Right, yeah. The silk sheets, silk shirt. Uh, So here's his response. This is, again, a quote. When I saw the video, my jaw dropped. It was diabolical. 
I looked at it and said, what the fuck is this? (laughs) Oh, that's funny. I remember a guy from the record company saying, don't worry about it. The record's a smash. I wanted to believe it would be okay. My girlfriend said something like, this is going to ruin you. And this is where I'll take responsibility. I could have stopped it. I found out subsequently that Springsteen had shot a video and hated it. So he scrapped it. But no one scraps this video. The oral history really, it it just devolves into finger pointing at the whole situation. Capitol Records says they thought it was bad and shouldn't be used. Billy's managers say they tried to stop Billy. Billy says he couldn't stop it. But regardless, in the moment, it gets released. And there's no putting that genie back in the bottle. If you've not seen the video, I highly encourage you to do it. It is the first link in the show notes. I want to point out, this song is terrific. And and where I find this to be so weird is it sounds like people were telling him that this sucks, and then he's saying that he couldn't stop it, when if he just fired Kenny Ortega and he shot a video of him and a band playing it, and they had like B-roll footage of whatever, really doing something, they could have just done that. The the one of... They talk to his two co-managers in this oral history, and he will promptly fire them after this all goes south. But they say that they went to Kenny Ortega and said, whatever you do, make sure you get tons of B-roll of the band. Get them playing the entire song, because as they're watching this, they're worried, you know, like they're on site seeing this the day of. And they're like, if we just get a bunch of coverage, we can just have him playing. Because there's nothing yep. wrong with that. Because he always has a guitar. He's a guitar guy. And, and so that it's funny that you bring that up. So that's the whole thing. This is a His Billy no, Squire quote. Right, the, there's no guitar. The idea Kenny pitched was take the guitar off. He says, I've seen you perform, and you have great moves on stage, so let's go into a soundstage, and we'll take the guitar off, literally. And then you pretend like you have it on. So not air guitar, but you basically do the moves you do on stage but without the context of the stage, you do it in a bedroom with a silk blouse <laughs> and silk sheets and a comic book city backdrop. Gosh, if if they took me, if people took me and like if I was doing something on stage and acting like I had a guitar without a guitar, I would be institutionalized. You look like a crazy person. Like, 100%. like he's having a stroke, you know. So it's like me at a County Crows concert. So listen, <laughs> we, th- this is the deal. It comes out looking like singing in the rain or something. Like it's very stage musical, which of course it is because they hired a stage musical choreographer. Like right. what did they think was going to happen? But speaking really bluntly, the reaction is mostly that this video makes Billy Squire look gay. And um, it, it's 1984 yeah. in America. So I don't need to draw the lines and connect all the dots. Now, there's a counter argument here that there is culture club and Duran Duran on MTV at this time and yep. wham. So why would, but it's, I think it's what, where Billy is coming from and the audience that he has built to this point that probably is having a harder time figuring this out and kind of putting the pieces together here. Here's the other thing that's in this oral history, which I, I actually feel like this is just a bunch of cheap shots, but there's a collection of famous people reacting to the music video. Let me just read you a few. Oh, okay. Phil Collin from Def Leppard. <laughs> the first big tour Def Leppard did in the States was in 83 as the opening act for Billy Squire. 
a year later, Squire learned the hard way that rock singers shouldn't skip through their bedroom and rip their shirts off. Ah. Uh. Rudolph Shanker from the Scorpions. I also love this because it reads in broken English. I liked Billy Squire very much, but then I saw him do video in very terrible way. I couldn't take the music serious. <laughs> and then Steve Lukather. Billy Squire was a cool guy. I worked on one of his records, but that video killed his career. It's so weird. And, and so Billy contends. Again, I said Billy believes this, right? If nobody else does, Billy does. Billy contends that, quote, the tour before I was selling out arenas faster than Sinatra. As Forget about it. As soon as that video came out, I was playing to half houses. Now, I, I would like to see the sales figures. That's a pretty dramatic reaction to all this. In fact, there's a guy named Jeff Giles who wrote a piece for Ultimate Classic Rock offering a counterpoint to this. And this is like last summer he wrote this piece. And he says, like he went back historically looked at the numbers. He says, looking at the numbers, what Billy claims happens is not accurate. First of all, you alluded to this by saying Rock Me Tonight was a great song. Rock Me Tonight is actually his best charting hit overall. Yeah, right? Signs of Life went platinum, which, you know, not as successful as the 3X platinum record that you owned in 81, but still platinum. And while he won't have continued mainstream pop success, he does have sizable rock hits into the 90s. He, he'll release 10 more singles after Rock Me Tonight, and wow. they, they will all make the top 40 on Billboard's mainstream rock chart. Wow, I didn't know that at all. I thought he was dead, dead. No, now none of them stick around. They're, none of those songs are songs we've talked about. But he, here is what this writer, Jeff, from uh, Classic Rock says. Squire's downfall may not have been caused by anything more than simple audience burnout. The same thing that's killed the vast majority of recording careers for about as long as we've had recorded sound. It's unfair to pin Squire's fast fade on rock fans deserting him after suddenly believing he was gay. Yeah, and, and what percentage of households had MTV? Because not everyone had cable. Yeah. That's a real thing. That's a good point. Yeah. So some people might not have seen. And plus, I, you know, it's like, I don't know how fast the, the heavies, the heavy rotation videos would circle up. But like, you know, how long did you have to watch MTV to see that video? It, it's interesting, though, that Billy will mostly leave recording his own music after like the mid 90s. He does one more record. So he does a record in 94 and then he's mostly done. And then he'll do a really small, mostly acoustic record in 98. And then he doesn't do much. Now, some things you'll read will make it sound like he just completely, you know, disappeared from the limelight. That's not really true. He's performed on and off for the last 20 years with Ringo Starr's all-star band and those tours. And he's pursued other things on his own. He got into film and writing and some other stuff, but Meanwhile, like as we've already pointed out, while Billy's first career is ending, Kenny Ortega is finding all the success and becomes a very recognizable. I mean, you knew who he was when I said his name, right? He becomes a very recognizable name in certain circles. It, it's weird because when I got to thinking about this and had read through it all and done the research, it reminded me of, of something else that's going to sound a little weird. But bear with me. 
it reminds me of the story of the 1960 presidential debates. Do you know this story? Yeah, yeah. It's the one that Nixon won on the radio and Kennedy won because he was on TV. Kennedy won great. on TV. September 26, yeah. 1960. It, is, it, it has been sort of canonized as this example of the power of television. So the idea is, to put it very simply, that if you heard it, you thought Nixon won. If you saw it, you thought Kennedy won. And that was because, A, Kennedy was hot. B, Nixon had been in the hospital, refused to wear makeup because he was older and he just didn't get it, and he seemed nervous. And so this story is so often told to illustrate the overwhelming power of the visual medium. And in some ways, I think this is like the same story for the MTV generation. On the radio, Rock Me Tonight's a huge hit. Oh, yeah. On TV, it crashes and burns and takes a lot of Billy Squire's momentum away. I have that song burned in my brain because I love that song, and I don't have the video as much, but man, when I, when I get to you know, see it again, it, it is pretty embarrassing with the silk so shirt. I, I read a lot about it before I watched it on purpose because I was like, I want to academically approach this because I, I didn't know this song and I didn't know this story. I've always wondered why Billy Squire isn't playing state fairs every year and why we don't run into him on you know, on these big revival tours and stuff and sort of what happened to him. He becomes, and I know from working in Classic Rock Radio that he is still a staple. There's at least three of those songs that are big, regular rotation songs from most Classic Rock Radio stations. So I, I, I had never known this part of the story. And I think that I would really like to see 73 year old Billy Squire give it another shot. Let's, let's give this guy like one more tour. He should go out on a tour. Like he should go out and support the Stones or something. Like something pretty far out, well, where he gets in front of a lot of people. Did, did you ever see any of those Ringo All Star Band lineup things? I saw one. I I always like the one guy who's always there is Mark Farner. And yeah. my dad loves Mark Farner because Mark Farner became a Christian at some point, like in the eighties, and he redid some kind of wonderful to be about Jesus. Have we uh, talked about this? This is a real thing. No. This is a real thing. And so he's always like, yeah, we should go see the Ringo All-Star Band because Mark Farner's playing. And I'm like, that sounds like the reason to not go. <laughs> <laughs> but if Billy Squire's there, I'm in, Dad. I'm in. If you want to get involved in the show, uh, please make like Mark from Michigan and send us your requests and quandaries so we can uh, check into them and see what we can turn up. And you can always get involved also via, you know, via the reviews Wherever you download the show, it's super helpful to us if you review this show, uh, especially if you like it. And uh, also hit us up on Instagram. It's backslash rock and roll bedtime stories. And you heard it at the beginning of the show, but we are now on Patreon and we are making exclusive content for our patrons, including what I have to say was a pretty excellent countdown of the top five love songs of all time for Valentine's yeah. Day. Right. <laughs> I feel good about that. Uh, and we have a new episode coming soon where we will be uh, creating playlists, uh, sort of back and forth together. We'll be creating playlists in real time. So if any of that sounds appealing and you want access to that content, throw us five or 10 bucks a month and you can do that at patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. And until next time, Murdoch, what do people need to keep doing? Keep telling stories. 
Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.